0: Push, push and lies Killers and water lies We got more Welcome to the Loose Filter Project. We have a, uh, a rare special event planned for you today. I'm actually sitting in the same room with my collaborator and partner in, cl- in crime, uh, Bogus Pomp. Believe it. Believe it. We're both here talking <laughs> in the same microphone. Uh, today, we thought we would we would talk to you. We're going to try to lay down in, in, in uh, BP's brief visit here to California, uh, the tracks for a few podcasts, where we can both talk to you as conductors, and we thought it might be interesting for this podcast to talk a little bit about um, the conductor's role and the influence a conductor has over a piece of music, uh, which is something that's sort of obscure to a lot of people. I don't know if you do, but I often get asked, what does a conductor do, you know, other than stand up there and wave your arms around and terrorize the musicians and Right, threaten their offspring or whatever,
1: and it's it's one of those questions that's so huge is that it always freezes me.
0: Right, it's like what? I just sort yeah. of yeah, lots. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you hear, <laughs> at least half of that. Yeah. Um, so we thought we'd use a piece that hopefully is familiar to all of our listeners. Uh, the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the very famous fake motive, bum 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 bum, and uh, looking at two recordings, two recent recordings of this piece. One by Simon Rattle, the current conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. And this recording is guest conducting the Vienna Philharmonic. And one with uh, Benjamin Zander, the Boston-based American conductor, guest conducting England's Philharmonia Orchestra. Before we get into any specifics, though, we thought we'd talk in general a little bit about the conductor's role and answer some of those questions I mentioned. Like, you know, what is a conductor's role? Especially with a work that's... uh, widely known and really well known mm-hmm.
1: I think you know I, part of it depends on, on what level of group you're conducting not to make distinctions right away but I think one of the the, the best definitions of conducting that I've heard came from Michael Morgan who conducts the Oakland East Bay Symphony in, uh, in the Bay Area he said being a conductor is about being a leader among equals and that it's, it's a partnership between the conductor and the musicians, but it's the conductor's responsibility to make a cohesive whole out of out of uh, a piece of music.
0: Yeah, I've definitely always viewed our role as uh, sort of chief collaborator.
1: Right.
0: You know, I mean, the great performances, especially now with this generation of conductors, like around Simon Rattle's age, who are, what, early 50s, mid-50s, yeah. who are very, that's very young, you mm. know. They're just yeah. arriving sort of at the top <laughs> right. of their craft um you really see especially when you watch them in rehearsal how collaborative they are i mean they say things that a generation or two would have been unfathomable like what do you think of that passage how should that phrase go they actually actively ask their players and engage them right you know in the decision making process so so yeah the conductor's role is sort of you know the 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 buck stops with the conductor the the decisions do ultimately need to be made about a conductor uh sorry by the conductor but I thought, you know, maybe we should talk about the kinds of decisions you have to make. I mean, like let's, yeah, like sure. we're looking at the first movement of Beethoven 1. Or sorry, Beethoven 5. Uh-huh. What decisions are there for you to make? You open up the score, you've started studying, obviously you're aware of the history of the work, you've played it, you know the, you know, you know the piece. What decisions are there for us? Uh,
1: the first one is how long your fermata is going to be. <laughs> That's true.
0: You've got two in the first four bar to four bars to deal with.
1: Yeah, um, and I think in the recordings, well, I don't want to get specific yet, but
0: we can let's let's listen to those opening four. This is the very famous opening four bars, and uh, uh, we'll use just we won't tell you which version this is from. We'll just this is this is the opening four bars from uh, from from one of the versions. So right away, you have to make a decision. About how those opening bars, you know, how long are those fermatas going to be?
1: Right, and in the, in the excerpt we heard that the the first fermata in particular is very short, and and I think that sets the tone for the whole movement. And it and then the conductor uh, keeps that going with the brisk tempo, but to me it seems very breathless right off the bat because he made that first fermata so short.
0: Well, and not only did he make the fermata short, the entrance is on top. There's an, it's not fermata release third bar. It's Ba da da ba da da right. So they're one on top of the other, and that really sets you up for a much more forward-leaning kind of frantic mood for the thing. Let's we should contrast it now. This is that was version A. This is version B, which where the fermatas are a little longer and there's a little more space after them. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, now this one to me sounds. I don't know. Much more authoritarian. Much more uh, polished. I mean, it's still, it's got it. There's a, a note of urgency there, but it's it's more magisterial. It's a you know, it's a you're being threatened from you know on high rather than rather than a car speeding at you, right, or somebody, or being in
0: the car. That's yeah,
1: or yeah, or somebody mugging you in the alley, right. That's to me is the, it's the main difference between between the two, and then that sets the tone. It's. A, it, it, the pace is, is not as quick as the first excerpt, and and it, there's not that sense of urgency.
0: And as it plays out in the first you know minute or so, as you move through the exposition, the the mood of those first four bars of the two versions really plays out to my mind. Mm-hmm. If you listen to version A, we can tell you this that's the Benjamin Zander version. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more driving and it's much more urgent. And and version B, which is Simon Rattle conducting the Vienna Phil is it's not that it's not urgent, It's not that it lacks momentum. It is. I, it's much more refined, in a sense. Right. And, and rattle, I notice, if you listen in the first 30 seconds or so, goes a lot more for textural transparency. You hear the horn crescendos much more predominantly. You hear the woodwinds passing around that four-note motive uh, a lot more in the foreground. And in the xander, it's all sort of absorbed by the the momentum and the energy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the uh, uh, the rattle version is is more carefully crafted. Where I mean, where the the um, I mean, the emotional statement he wants to make is obviously there, but it's. To him it's it's not like the sole concern where it seems to be in the Xander where the where the, the emotions he's he's um you know trying to elicit are are forefront right away
0: do you think it's a stretch to say that maybe what we can infer from listening to a little bit of the first movements and we'll play a, a couple minutes out of each version in just a second so you can hear what we're talking about but do you think it would be too much to infer that for Xander this movement is about the experience, the rush of these sounds. And rattle is contemplating more the object of music as well as the experience of the music because the structure comes through, the texture is more transparent in the rattle, where Xander is, seems to be putting more emphasis, though it's very clear. I mean, everything's there. I right, mean, right, right, right. Here, we're, we have to say to our listeners, we're parsing levels of greatness here. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of these performances are stellar. And absolute first, absolutely first rate. Um, um, but do you think that's too much of a stretch to say that 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 Xander seems to me at least to be more about the experience of this piece and Rattle is thinking more also about presenting the work of art,
1: right? No, that's yeah, I mean, that's I think Xander definitely wants to communicate these emotions. I mean, when I when I listen to the music, that's what strikes me first. I, I, you know, I can only assume as a skilled conductor that's his intention. And the same thing with rattle, yeah. And I think, you know, I think also the the rattle conducting the Vienna Philharmonic. I think that plays a role in that. It's it that's as an orchestra that has played this piece, and I'm sure considers it, you know, its own piece. Certainly. Yeah.
0: And an orchestra. Much more heavily steeped and directly steeped in the Viennese classical right, tradition. Right,
1: that's what I was trying to say. I think. Which,
0: yeah, and which which comes through, I think, in mm-hmm. the playing of it. You know, mm-hmm. you can hear Beethoven the classicist more in the Vien- in Vienna's performance than you right. can in the Philharmonia's performance. And whether that, I mean, obviously, it's got to come from the players, but it's got to be collaborative. It's got to certainly, come, you know. And a lot of times, when you talk about a recording, too you refer to the conductor as if it were all his or her decisions. Right. But really, that's just a convenient way to say the sum total of musicianship represented on this recording of this performance.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, certainly. As a conductor, you can't make every decision about every note for every player. I mean, Nor would you, you want to. No. You. you it's mean, limiting. There. Yeah. You're up there and you know you process the sound that comes from the ensemble and then you make decisions on what you want to change and why. I mean, I think that's that's part of the part of the collaboration is is accepting some things and some some that's player true. decisions yeah. and and definitely and changing and not accepting others.
0: Well, and the real the greats come in with an absolutely clear idea of what they want to hear, right? But then we'll turn on a dime if they get something they really enjoy from a player mm-hmm. or from a section, yeah, exactly. like ah, yes, I like that. Good, we'll go with it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course might have to adjust decisions further down the road that they made to bring it in line with that. Right. But that's collaboration. hmm You know, I thought A, but you said B, and now we have C. Right. And we're all, it's all the better for it. So I think maybe now let's play, uh, uh, we'll play you first uh, about a minute and a half of Zanders uh, of and the Philharmonia, Benjamin Zander and the Philharmonia Orchestra, playing Beethoven 5, and then without comment in between... We will play you, we will follow that with uh, about a minute and a half of uh, Simon Rattle, Sir Simon, and the the Vienna Philharmonic, and see if you can't hear some of these differences. for me one of the things I love about this piece is it's it's one of Beethoven's symphonies That's that's obviously really forward looking but that presents such a challenge because the more Beethoven I perform and the more Mozart and Haydn I perform mm-hmm. the more I realize that Beethoven it always was throughout his life a Viennese classical composer ah. and so capturing for me capturing reconciling the fact that the symphony in form in most of the technique it is very classical with a capital C with the sort of fire and passion Beethoven was trying to imbue his musical expression with uh-huh. is like often tough because when he writes triple forte on the page with a modern orchestra you can overplay that dynamic a lot. I think you can make these symphonies into things that are beyond what Beethoven imagined them to be. Right. I don't... I. Have you had that experience? Yeah. I When
1: I did uh, Beethoven 4 in grad school, we had a lot of those problems. I mean, you have to... I mean, just kind of nuts and bolts, technical and, and, and textural problems. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Or how, how to take what he's given us on the page and kind of...
0: Well, it's sort of like my, my mind is is corrupted, in a sense, mm-hmm. by having learned and played uh, oh. Stravinsky right. and, you know, John Adams. I mean, you know, having played Mahler and yeah. Brahms, even. Yeah. I mean, knowing where, what, to a great degree, Beethoven sort of opened the door for, right. okay. and, and not letting that... It's what we were talking about earlier, before, obviously, the, the recorder was mm-hmm. on... The, the the you know in the seventies the, the the period instrument movement sort of started with Nicholas Harnoncourt and Christopher Hogwood people like that mm-hmm. trying to get back to authenticity and, and as much as we can ascertain authenticity from this vantage but getting away from this habit that the golden age conductors and the silver age conductors even like von Karajan had yeah. of of doubling wins and doing ninety plus member orchestras to play Beethoven kind of molarizing Beethoven right I
1: had, there's a a recording. Of, uh, of an Karajan recording, where of uh, the Mozart Requiem that I bought, and then the tuba mirum, the solo was doubled. <laughs> I, 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 I I laughed and turned it off at that point, and I never listened to it ever again. Right, you and that's the most ridiculous thing. But
0: you know, it? for for a long time, it was like, of course, that's what you do. Right, of course, you need three hundred voices for the <laughs> Mozart Requiem. <laughs> right, and and this is in, in a sense, while the the period instrument movement obviously didn't literally triumph, we don't you know, haul out our gut string violins and our valveless brass instruments every time we want to play Beethoven, they did really succeed in that while the spirit of Beethoven's expression may lend itself to 90 players with a billion decibels and, you know, all that stuff, that really distorts the essential Viennese classical nature of all of Beethoven's output, Mm -hmm. I think. And what's clear to me in both of these recordings, which are recent recordings, is that no matter how sort of you know fiery they get, especially in the Xander, because one of the things he talks about is real strict adherence to beethoven's tempo markings, which of course are fast right um even though he goes after that, getting you in the stream of the experience mm-hmm. it it always sounds like a classical piece of music to me, right, I think something that also that also has helped that is that
1: um you know, conductors in the first half of the 20th century, I think Beethoven was just like this giant monumental, uh, figure to them. He was like a, a, a saint, a hero, a deity. And I think now, especially with all the, just the kind of the, 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 biographies that have come out lately and, and the, the scholar, the music scholarship, I mean, the more it just gets more and more personal and personal. I think part of it is that you Beethoven he's become a human again, become a fallible. That's human. a good point. Yeah, that's true. And, um, I think that's part of it, but definitely the performance, the practice movement has influenced it. It's, and yeah, I mean, I think we've all heard performances where we go and hear classical music that's, the classical, music from the classical period, of Mozart, Haydn, uh, or Beethoven, and that's that's just way overboard. Or overblown. Schubert. Or Don't Schubert. forget Schubert. And, and Spore. <laughs>
0: that giant among men right uh,
1: but it, it, even you know, your professional works is way overplayed it's just it's not the same you can't to, to play with large forces it just doesn't work and I, I, there's something I've done a lot of Mozart with my youth orchestra this year and I think it's I don't know to get that music to speak it you just I think you have to think a certain way I think the same is true for Beethoven I mean it, and there's I mean, you have to get your players to play with, you know, intensity, but not that doesn't necessarily equate volume or the harshness of attack or all these things. I mean, it's, I think, uh, and going back to, to to the decisions that conductors make, I think you have to. There's there's a way to achieve an intensity without strength of numbers or with, without volume, and it, it's it's mental I mean, to, and gifted, and I struggle with this as well, and sometimes. We were able to achieve it, and most of the time we weren't.
0: But. And this sort of highlights the um, one of the fundamental uh, fine lines that a conductor has to walk in that role, in that you have to be very full of yourself in the sense that you have made clear decisions, you believe in the decisions you've made, yeah. and you have a clear idea of how you want a piece to sound, but you also have to be selfless enough that your own person as a musician doesn't overshadow the composer doesn't overshadow the work itself and i think like when you listen to like that famous von karajan 1963 beethoven cycle mm-hmm. that like everybody has it's the that has a beethoven cycle that is that red cover with him with his you know oh, yeah. flowy hair cover mm-hmm. picture on the cover mm-hmm. um, like when I hear that, I hear von Karajan first and Beethoven second. Right. There's a real danger for a conductor is what I'm saying in imposing too much of yourself on the piece. Mm-hmm. And at its essence, as I understand it, anyway, both of us having grown up after the period instrument movement was already, you know, sort of underway, um, that it's that that our role is first and foremost about revealing the work itself, right, right. rendering it as faithful as we can, then we have a secondary responsibility, ourselves as well as the players, to infuse it with our own, mm-hmm. you know, passion and decision making. And I think both of these conductors do a tremendous job of keeping Beethoven at, in front and center. Right. I May mean, I agree. And yeah, I have to say that
1: that uh, kind of my de facto starting point for learning a piece is is... You know, fidelity to the score and whatever that means and it's right you can't uh, I don't know I get I, maybe that's the same for all conductors maybe that's kind of a given but
0: I'm not sure it is for yeah for many
1: it's I mean you just I don't know that you just I mean you have just have to absorb the piece so to the point and you have to learn about it and and you know think about how every how every note and gesture is to sound. I mean you get all these things I mean they and not only in your head. For me I find that you learn a piece and it goes in your head first and then it kind of seeps down into the rest of your body once you feel a piece in your bones and then when you go to rehearse it, for me anyway, it's I mean to me that is you know, you're speaking as the composer or for the composer. I think it's that's I don't know. Well and, what, off
0: there. and I, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. And one of the things that frustrates me is that for all of its precision, and and and, I, I you know, when you step back and think about it, the language of musical notation is fascinating mm. and extraordinarily clever. To be able to to write something down like a forty five minute symphony, and and have people be able to reproduce it almost two hundred years later, I mean that's amazing. That's yeah. astonishing. Yeah. With any sort of of, of, of reasonable facsimile of what it was 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't ever reproduce it, but I, my sense is we've gotten pretty darn close, you know, yeah. especially with these Del Mar, Jonathan Del Mar's uh, scholarship on the Berenreiter editions of the Beethoven. Mm-hmm. There's been some Beethoven scores in the last decade that have come out that have been real concerted efforts at, at getting um, uh, as, as close a text to, to Beethoven's intention as we could. But, but my frustration is that for all its specificity, it is still completely vague. Oh, yeah. So Beethoven writes SF under a chord for the whole orchestra, which of course means Forzando, which indicates to be played with a loud impact. But well, what kind? Is it an impact of volume? Is it an impact of attack with the tongue or the bite of the bow into the string? Right. Is it how long is it sustained? It doesn't say. It just says SFZ under a whole note. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Does it do we sustain it for the length of the note, or is it only at the front end, or an accent mark? Well, what does that mean? Doesn't tell me anything about the back end of the note either. Right. And so, like all these m- minutia that you have to make very specific decisions about, and make them jive with your overall sense of the work. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It, can, it can be a
0: tremendously frustrating process, I think, in some ways.
1: Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And every decision has to has to uh, to be consistent with you know your your the own, whole your, yeah right and your, your whole conception
0: of the piece, it's it's maddening. It's one of those things when you hear because most of us who listen to Beethoven, you know if you go buy a commercial recording it's going to be pretty good. Right. Even not so good commercial recordings are really pretty darn good. Yeah. And when you hear it done well, it just sounds right. And so it doesn't occur to a listener the millions of minutiae, the decisions that went into this note attacked this way and this short and it must match the Five thousand seventeen other times that it occurs in the next forty five minutes, right? Because of this, you know, when you hear it done right, you're not even aware of it. Right. and speaking
1: about that consistency, I don't know if you had you've had this experience, but I have hearing uh, a performance of a piece, uh, usually from the standard repertory, that you thought was great and like disagreed with completely. Oh yeah, but because definitely. it was con- it was so consistent the whole the whole time, it was. I mean, this was just. You tell the the conductor thought about every detail and executed all of that, and yet disagreed with all of the decisions.
0: Oh, definitely. It's like my teacher used to say: there are no the only wrong decision is no decision. Yeah, that that's the most the, the most offensive performance is a boring one. Right. One where there are no decisions in evidence. I I've heard performances of works that that I know really well mm-hmm. that I feel like I perform well, mm-hmm. um, and thought I disagree with every single decision this conductor made from tempo to style to everything. But wow, that was a really compelling performance. Right.
1: Yeah. And if, uh, on the other hand, if there was ever a piece that fell victim to no decisions being made, it would be Beethoven 5. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing when, when you listen to recordings, you hear performances of a piece like that, and, and you are
0: not moved. Shocking. You know, another thing that occurs to me is when you listen to the Golden Age recordings of Beethoven 5, I, I think we, we don't take into account how much the technique of conducting has advanced through the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Because for Xander to be able to go, ba 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 ba-ba-ba-ba, right on top of it. I mean, you listen to these old recordings from the 30s and 40s, and they're very careful about those bars. Mm-hmm. Because they were terrifying to a conductor. Yeah. So you hear, ba-ba-ba-ba, release, wait, <laughs> prep, ba-ba-ba-ba, release, prep ba-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba ba, 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 and then you had those like two generations of conductors who just simply couldn't believe that Beethoven meant the metronome markings his metronome right. had to be broken he couldn't possibly have meant right. the tempo that he wrote down you know, and and of course now we, we look at it and we go, no, he did mean those tempos and, and the, 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 the technique of conducting and, mm-hmm. and players' ability to read a conductor has progressed such a great deal that mm-hmm. I think, like you and I are the benefit, uh, you know, have the benefit of being able to go, ba-ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba, and do it all with a stick, and players are right on top of it. They know how to read that, in other words.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. It's, I don't don't know, I mean, they just, who knows.
0: (laughs) So we leave you uh, uh, in this part of the discussion. uh, We'll call this part one of an ongoing podcast. We will leave you here on this podcast with uh, uh, a chunk with us singing, Beethoven. With us singing. we're going to sing the entire <laughs> symphony right now <laughs> in fixed <el> <laughs> Uh So we will we will leave you with uh, with uh, matching uh, excerpts. Or do we want to match them, or do we want to do differing excerpts? We're, you, we've obviously cleverly planned this whole podcast out in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will leave you with two excerpts. Uh, the first one is is Benjamin Zander again in the Philharmonia uh, Orchestra, and the second one is Sir Simon Rattle. And, and the Vienna Philharmonic, and let you, with our uh, incredibly logical and well-ordered points that we've presented to you, <laughs> uh, see, see if your ear can, can perceive uh, differences in the decisions that these conductors and these players made given the same source text, the same experience, the same history, the same idiom, and all of those things, and how dramatically different the, a rendering, two renderings of the same work of art can be And not only different, but equally compelling, I think.